Hello and welcome back to the Future World Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and in today's episode I'm taking you back to my conversation with Bruce Filer as part of my top five podcasts of 2023 series. Thanks as always for listening, thanks for your support and I'll see you back here in a few weeks for a brand new series. Hello and welcome back to the Future World Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and I've got a really special guest for you today. It's a really brilliant conversation. It's someone I've wanted to have on the show for a couple of years. Rewind to the depths of COVID. We're all stuck in lockdown. I was at home with three kids. It wasn't all bad, but let's be honest, it was pretty tough. And it just coincided with me going through what I realized at the time was a life transition. And I realized that because of Bruce Vilas' book, Life is in the Transitions. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with Bruce, in which we talk about some of the content in Life is in the Transitions. In fact, at the very beginning, I asked him about a really wonderful story he told in that book about early in his life, early in his career, when he moved to Japan, moved far away from home and started writing letters to his grandmother. And that was the springboard to some unexpected events which led him to where he is today. Bruce has got a new book out. It's called The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. And that's why now is a perfect time to speak to him. As you know, my book, World Life Flywheel, was about the huge changes we were experiencing in the workplace. It was also reflective of my career transition, the pivot I made from running an advertising agency for 10 years into the work that I'm doing now. So I was really happy to be able to share the impact that Bruce's book made on me with him before the show that you'll hear today and during our conversation. If you enjoy the conversation, do check out Bruce's work. I'll put a link in the show notes and also check out World Life Flywheel, in which I share the stories of many other people who also experience the type of workquakes that Bruce has discovered. Each of us experiences around every two and a half years of our life. Last thing, I'll be writing about this in the newsletter in the coming weeks. So do sign up to Future Work Life on Substack. But that's enough from me from now. Let's jump into my conversation with Bruce Filer. So Bruce, it's great to have you on the show. Let me start by asking a question, which you might need to put into context for listeners. Why do you think your grandmother shared the letters you wrote home while living in Japan, I think it was? And what did that tell you about your who? Oh, I love that question. What an interesting way to start this conversation. First of all, thank you for inviting me and for uh, your kind words. And let me just say I'm, I'm touched and grateful and maybe we'll get into it in this conversation that my work has 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 landed with you in your moments of transition of late and I'm honored to have played that role and and happy to follow this conversation wherever it goes so the context is I grew up in the American South five generations in the state of Georgia and I grew up in a family that integrated you know, life and work, if you will, right? It was sort of a a multi-generational family business, which my mother, who was not from Georgia, but she was from Baltimore, and her whole thing was like, she a little bit kind of moved south and I think a little bit felt trapped there. And for her, it was like, get out, go see the world. <laughs> and and I, I sort of think one of the defining things about me is that I grew up in the age of discount airfare <laughs> in the in the 80s when, when cheap and affordable travel. And so sort of all these things, like I came from a place, so I was quite eager to travel. And so I, I, I left Georgia, I, I went to Yale in the 80s, and I went to Japan, and I started writing these letters home on crinkly airmail paper, which I find to be 
a, a very, very effective way to tell how old someone is, whether they know what airmail paper is, right? And we used to have these things on very thin paper, and there were no lines on the on the pad. In fact, the pads used to come with lines so you could stick them underneath the onion skin paper so that your writing didn't get all quiggly. In fact, as we taped this conversation yesterday, I was at the Metropolitan Museum in New York with my daughter looking at an exhibition of Vincent Van Gogh cypresses which he painted quite late in his life including in the famous starry uh, uh, the starry night and it included letters of his and i was you know pointing these letters to my daughter and pointing out notice how straight the writing is like and how did he do that he was an artistic ar- artistic person um at his heart and so i went to japan and i started writing letters home of the you're not going to believe what happened to me variety and when i got back home to georgia six months later everyone said I loved your letters. <laughs> and I was like, great, have we met? And that it, it was really that impulse that led me to say, oh, if this, is, if this is that interesting to me and to all these people, like maybe I should, maybe I should write a book about this. I didn't know anyone who'd ever written a book and it doesn't really happen this way. But one thing led to another and I sold my first book at 24, almost 35 years ago now. And I've never held a job since. So that's the backstory. Now, your question is very interesting, right? Which is, I'm not sure I've ever thought of it, which is why did my grandmother share the letters? And and then why did they sort of go viral <laughs> in a sort of OG sense of the word? And I, I guess I would say um, a couple of reasons. Number one probably was pride. Right. You know, look at, uh, you know, look at my son later in this conversation. Let's make a note here to talk about Hans Christian Andersen and uh, mm-hmm. Auntie Toothache, because it really sort of echoes with this story in a certain way. So number one, I think was pride. Like, oh, look at my grandson. He can write an, an interesting letter. But I also think ultimately it was topic in a lot of ways that people passed it around. Right. And there was a sort of something of this was a moment when. I don't know what we Mao might think of as globalism, right? The the idea that people from different parts of the world can connect and are interconnected was just coming about. In some ways, this conversation is an example of that, right? We're in different continents. We have different life stories, but yeah. they have intersected. And yet we can literally be looking at each other and talking to each other. So I think in some ways it was a recognition of that, right? That the world is changing and fundamentally I think it's the third question, which is really a frame for the conversation we're about to have. And that is, it was a narrative event, right? I was telling stories about this other place and how I was reacting to it and how this place was changing me. And that is the fundamental act. When we go through a life transition, the fundamental response to it is narrative in a fundamental way. Mm. And I'm absolutely certain we'll dig into this point more, but you talk about digging um, in your most recent book. And I wonder whether that inclination to write in this narrative style, to share your story with your grandmother and subsequently to many other people, was something that was there as a child. You know, did you always feel a need perhaps to tell your story or did it just emerge maybe because you had stepped away from the comfort of being near home? Well, that's also a lovely question, um, and I appreciate it. And I would say, um, if we're going there, I said that I was five generations from the American South. What I didn't say is that it was five generations of Jews in the American South. And and I always think in terms of me, 
and to a certain extent in terms of everybody, but in terms of me, I love the South. I love the familyness. I love the stickiness. I love the storytellingness. But I grew up Jewish in the South, which meant I had kind of a foot in that world and a foot not in that world. Mm-hmm. I love being Jewish. I love the familyness, the stickiness, the storytellingness. But I grew up Jewish not only separated from the sort of long tradition of of Judaism beginning in the Middle East and spreading across Europe and North Africa to the to the US, but even from American Judaism, which was predominantly kind of a Northeast New York City uh, immigrant phenomenon, but in this but a Jew in the South. And uh, so I felt a part of it and apart from it. So I think that in a lot of ways, my identity is about, you know, not kind of always feeling somewhat apart in, 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 in kind of a core way. And I think that I find I have kind of, I don't know, I used to say two skills. And now I think it's three, they're all made up words. The first is I'm an experientialist. I like going out into the world and experiencing it. As I say, like move to Japan in the middle of the 80s when Japan is re-entering the world after uh, you know, half a half a century of of of, uh, of expansion and 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 and, re- and defeat and then rebuilding. But then I'm also an explainaholic, and I like kind of leaving and explaining a certain world to people who weren't in it, and. Those were the that that's a word actually that was invented by Isaac Asimov about himself. But then there's a third thing that I've become recently, which I th- which of course relates to all of this, which is that I'm now a, a a life historian and that I like this art and act of collecting life stories and looking for patterns that can help us navigate times of change, and then fundamentally then flipping that around and helping people when 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 they or in this case when you are in a life change, how is it that you can get through it. Well, the only way to get through it is to update your life story, accommodating the change. And that's precisely what I now, that's now sort of feels like my, you know, whatever life calling passion, the thing that I'm, that I'm, that I'm most interested in, of course, naturally, like all of these things, it grows out of our childhood (laughs) toothaches. That's so interesting hearing you explain it in that way. When I was reading the book, there's an interesting. I'm probably jumping to the very end here, but it's, yeah. As as you suggest, we we don't, we don't need to operate in a linear fashion, do we? We can. We do um, not because life is nonlinear. So this conversation <laughs> can be nonlinear too. I suppose. <laughs> Reap what you sow, son. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you to explain. We talk about it in the sense of the American dream, or there being this yeah. kind of one ideal, and look. For the you know benefit of the audience who aren't in the US, I think we understand conceptually what that means. And look, you don't have to jump too much to realize that those sort of paradigm, that way of thinking exists in other places too, including in, in the UK. But essentially, one of the arguments as I read it was, look, there is not one single path. We have many paths available to us. And we are, of course, all individuals. Now, I'm, I, I'm making an assumption here. But you tell me if I'm wrong. But my feeling was that probably at that time, despite as the world was beginning to change, perhaps you were sat just outside this traditional idea of here's mm-hmm. what my life and my career could be. Yeah, and I wonder right. if in some senses, everything, society, the world at large is kind of caught up with where you yeah. are rather than, oh, you know, is, so is that, would that be true? Yeah. First of all, you're good. I, I, I appreciate the way, the way I, I like that we're doing this conversation inside out, which may be incredibly frustrating for people listening to us, but I, it <laughs> resonates with me because the way I reason I chose to start my story in response to your question was, I do think a lot of it comes back 
to this being in a family business in Georgia, right? So we were talking about my grandmother. Let's talk about my grandfather, right? So my grandfather had come from Mississippi, right? That's, you know, and then moved to Georgia and was a country lawyer at a time when that was not, <laughs> that was a hard thing to do in, in, in Savannah, Georgia in, in the 1930s and 40s. And you, know, you had to represent everybody from criminals to pornographers to murderers because it was sort of scrape and do anything you could do. But by the time I was born in the 60s and, and growing up in the 70s, I used to have to go to work in the family office, which was not law at that point. It was kind of building low-income housing. And my grandfather would be there in his polished Oxfords, uh, speaking of England, right, in his bow tie, uh, uh, in his horn rim glasses, you know, sort of uh, like, look at my son with his good penmanship. And I would have to take this these payments, these rent payments from, from, from families, right, $18, $20, $24. And it was like, look him in the eye and shake their hand and, and conduct yourself in a certain way, right? And kind of the message in all of those Saturday mornings behind the big polished desks, right? With the big polished shoes, right? And the big polished lamps and everything. It was, it was sort of, son, the most important thing in life is work, right? Not love, not family, not passion, all these things that we taught, happiness, meaning, none of the stuff that we talk about today, it was work in a kind of an old-fashioned industrial, you know, hair tonic, masculinity kind of way, right? And everything was straight and tough and long and, um, you know, iron. And 40 years ago, this spring, as we taped this conversation, uh, you know, right before I graduated from high school, my father was diagnosed with Parkinson's, uh, uh, took a pistol and shot himself. And like the message was, I, I cannot live a, a sick man because if I cannot work, right, I cannot live. And, and I think that already I was pushing against that. Um, and I had an older brother who sort of took a more traditional line, which allowed me, who was kind of more artistic and creative and writerly, if you will. It gave me permission. But yes, from the very beginning, there was a tension. And here's how I would describe it now. Between what you should do and what you want to do. And that I find to be incredibly powerful still today. Like get off the should train. We spend our work lives following someone else's dream or someone else's vision for what it is that we think that we should do. And a lot of what's going on in the world of work today, I think the prominent thing that's going on in the world of work today is that we no longer have to be on the should train. And yet, Everything we've been told is how to be on the should train, how to follow the existing track. And so you mentioned the the, the kind of the Americana part of it, and I'll, I'll I'll pick up on that. I mean, so just to set the stage here, so what what happened to me is I had a linear life. I figured out what I wanted to do early. I did it for no money. I had some success. I got married. I had children. Like that's the fantasy. That is the linear, you know, sort of line in entrepreneurship. They call it the hockey stick, right? You've got mm -hmm. the blade and then the, the stick. And like it was everything going was going upward. But then in my 40s, my life blew up. First, I got cancer as a young dad. I had financial troubles. And my my own dad got the Parkinson's that he <laughs> that his father had. Um, got very depressed, and though he promised he would never do this, six times tried to take his life in 12 weeks. And so suddenly I was the storyteller who didn't know how to tell the story of my life, and I wanted to do something to help. And I have spent the last six years traveling across the U.S., collecting hundreds of life stories of Americans of all ages, all backgrounds, all walks of life, 
all 50 states, looking for patterns for how we can navigate change, right? So that's the work that led to my last book, Life is in the Transitions, that you mentioned, and to my new book, The Search, which is about work, okay? And so, you know, in some ways, the number one thing I learned about work is that around the world, particularly in America, it's so embodied as the quote-unquote American dream, we've been telling a story about climbing, right? Up by your bootstraps, rags to riches, right? The way the metric of success is money and power and external achievement. And it's all about the higher floor, bigger office, greater salary, more benefits, right? That's the story. It's the linear trajectory, what they now call the hockey stick. But the people who are happiest and most fulfilled in what they do, they don't climb, they dig. They do what I call a meaning audit. They go through kind of personal archaeology, going through their own lives, specifically through their own life story, and constructing a story that's suitable for who they are, not for who other people want them to be. Mm. Meaning clearly far more important than we've all probably realized and i wonder though you mentioned happiness before yeah what's the difference between happiness and meaning yeah it's a very important thing um uh, uh that we don't talk enough about the short answer is that happiness is fleeting and then meaning is long term right so you know animals can be happy right so ha- happiness is an emotion that you feel in um in, in a particular moment right i heard it <laughs> i heard it described <laughs> recently you know as a chocolate sundae right or an orgasm right or a feeling of of, of ecstasy and it's it, there is value to it but to build your whole, whole life around it is is deeply problematic because what meaning allows us to do is to integrate the periods of unhappiness <laughs> and difficulty mm-hmm. and challenge into uh, into the overall arc of our lives. So meaning stitches together past, present, and future. And so say, the, take what happened with my father. When my father essentially lost the will to live in his late 70s, we tried everything. We tried medication. We tried therapy. You know, We tried uh, lots of different solutions to the problem. But the thing that actually worked was that on a Monday morning, I sat down and I sent him an email uh, to tell me about the house you grew up with in as a child, right? Tell me about the toys you played with. How'd you become an Eagle Scout? How did you, you know, join the Navy? How'd you meet mom? And this began a process that continued over eight years in which I would send my father an email every week. And he, in effect, wrote or processed or storytelling himself back to life. And that plunged me into this world there's a specific world called narrative gerontology, um, which is how older people go back and reprocess their lives looking for meaning. But there's a larger field of narrative psychology and a sort of general life trend, which is to understand that we all have this story that's going on in our head about where we came from and who we are and where we're going. And the thing to remember is that that story isn't part of you. That story is you in a fundamental way. We now know because of neuroscience and our ability to understand the brain that our brains are wired to tell stories. I mean, if I were just to tell a story now, it's it's not, you know, I'm making this story up because it's actually summer as we have this conversation. But imagine it snowed overnight and snowed and snowed and snowed. And we had a huge blizzard and I went downstairs and I put on my jacket and I opened my door. And what did I see? Well, as I tell that story, anybody listening to us finishes the story, right? You imagine what I'm going to see, you know, in this case, a field of white or whatever it might be. 
So then when I tell this story, oh, it snowed and snowed and snowed last night. And I came downstairs and I put on my jacket and I opened the door. And what did I see? A giant pile of donuts. So when I say a giant pile of donuts, what I, I, I'm looking at you, our, you know, our, our listeners can't do that. You're smiling and you're like jolly and you're like, what's going to happen? Because that's an unexpected twist. Yeah. Okay. And now you want, because it surprised you because you had your own story and mm. my story contradicted your story. Well, I didn't expect a pile of donuts either, but life is about a pile of donuts. And that pile of donuts, it might be a, a, a diagnosis, it might be a downsizing, it might be a tornado, it might be a pandemic, okay? It might be the loss of legs or the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. Mm. We are constantly getting piles of donuts in our lives. And the question is, what do we do with the pile of donuts, right? Do I walk around the pile of donuts and go on with my way? Do I push them aside? Do I call a homeless shelter and say, would you like a pile of donuts? Do I start eating the pile of donuts? Do I go inside and go back under the covers and say, oh, my God, the last thing I can deal with in my life is a pile of donuts? Well, anybody listening to us has done all of those at some point in response to a pile of donuts. But from a narrative point of view, the pile of donuts is what makes the story interesting. <laughs> because it's the plot twist, right? It's the, I mean, if Aristotle had a word for it, Hollywood has a word for it, you have a word for it. Let's just call it a pile of donuts. What do you do when you get a pile of donuts? And what my work is now is about giving you the tools to integrate the pile of donuts into the story. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't just grit and grind and resilience your way through, which is how we talk mm -hmm. about life these days. No, make own the donuts, if you will. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. You know, I came to your work because I was going through, I guess, what you described in your previous book as a life quake, perhaps a work quake, that it was a combination for me of personal things that had changed and, and work things and then quickly followed by COVID and being at home with three very young kids and all of the things that I brought, which was uh, both fun and terribly challenging all at, all at once. Now, I, I, I wonder whether if when I'm reflecting on these, this idea of understanding your story and, in, and embracing your life story, how I might pass on this message to my kids for example you know what, what can yeah. what can i be doing with my children so that they are better prepared to deal with that pile of donuts than i was i think that the simplest answer to that question is name the pile of donuts right mm. I, I think i mean I'm, I'm i'm heading toward a very interesting kind of life moment myself i i i, I am now in a life quake by any metric in the in the course of 60 days this summer, I will have published a new book, The Surge. I will have watched my identical twin daughters graduate from high school. I will celebrate this week, as we tape this conversation, 15 years since I was diagnosed since with cancer and 20 years um, of marriage. And a month after that, I will uh, drop my children off to college and I will become an empty nester, right? Is there anybody in this conversation who knows anything about life transitions? So... Um, and, but then I have this interesting experience coming, which is five days after dropping my kids to college, I have been invited to a university in Tennessee 
where all 3,200 incoming freshmen have been assigned to read Life is in the Transitions, and I am to give them a speech and their parents uh, um, about the life transition that they are in, that I will be in exactly in the, at, the same, at the same window of time. And I think so – I've begun to think about what I want to say, and I think that one of the things that I want to say is – you mentioned life quick, right? So what have I learned from this process is that we all go through these moments of disruption in our lives, okay? The average person, if you just want to run the data for a second, goes through three dozen what I call disruptors in the course of their lives. That could be as small as twisting your ankle or a fender bender or as big as losing a leg or you know having your house burned down. Most of these we get through relatively easily. We are actually pretty good at navigating life transitions, but three – but one in 10 of them becomes what I call a life quake, a massive burst of change. And I use the word life quake purposefully because I want it to be value neutral. Because some of them are things that we consider traditionally bad, like losing a loved one or getting fired from your job. Um, uh, those are you know, involuntary, say, but some of them are voluntary right? You start a new venture, you get married, right? An involuntary life quake would be your spouse cheats on you. A voluntary life quake would be you cheat on your spouse, right? So they're sort of divided, you know, 50-50, if you will. And I, and I want the term to kind of be neutral in that way. So um, what happens in a life quake? Well, the life transition is the response to the life quake, right? So the, the way I like to think about it is the life quake puts you on your heels, and the life transition puts you back on your toes, right? It's how you take how you take agency to kind of get through uh, to get through the life quake. Okay, now, but here's the signature piece of data from that book, and that is that the average length of a of a of a life transition is five years. So you do the math: three to five in your lifetime, four, five, six years. That means the that's half of your adult life. That's twenty five years. You will be in a life transition. And if you look at it as a miserable period that you just got to slog your way through, you mm -hmm. are stigmatizing half of your life. Whereas, in fact, if you look at it as a period of time that is going to be difficult, but that there will be shedding and pain and mourning, but also <laughs> uh, building a new story, creativity, you know, reconnecting with, with other people, you, you can see it can also be a time of growth and renewal. And how can you maximize that? Okay, now let's go back to my kids um, who are older than your kids, perhaps, but are graduating from high school and going into college. Well, how, you know, what, are the, what is the process? It's exactly the thing I outlined in Life is in the Transitions, right? It's, it's letting go of the past, you know, using symbolism to, to, to say goodbye to it. It's shedding habits. It's experimenting with new habits. It's beginning to rewrite your story where you take control of it and introduce your new self. Well, how long does it take? It mm -hmm. takes three, four, five years. It's a classic example of a life transition, which is why I want to kind of rebrand that period of young adulthood as a transition. And one of the reasons I want to do that is because I want to say, you're going to go through this a lot more times. And in anything yeah. in life, there's data that show if you say to a child, for you know, um, uh, for example, oh, you've got a big basketball game tomorrow or a big ballet recital or a big test. If you say to them, you've done this before, 
it will give them more confidence that they can go through it successfully again. And you say, I've been through it and your, you know, and, you know, your mother and your grandmother and, and your neighbor, by the way, remember when their house burned down. So the answer to the question is to use this language. We should do it about college and young adulthood, and you can do it about anything uh, in an age-appropriate way, of course, to a, to a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old. Remember the last time you were scared, you got through it. This is a skill, kind of a soft skill in the contemporary language of skills, but it is a skill that you can get better at. Uh, and so if you use that language, then you will begin to normalize that this is just part of what it means to be alive. So thinking about the connection between work and life, can they ever be truly separate? No. And this idea of work-life balance is a preposterous idea. Um, because, um, for, first of all, it, it, it suggests, um, uh, I don't know. It suggests that there are different things that have to be kept in balance when, in fact, they are uh, part of the same thing. And also because that sort of says you want to build boundaries between the two. And, and, on, and on some level, like, you know, who can blame that, right? Who, with, with a phone and with a family, like, you, we know that the two can, you know, can intercept with each other and that that's potentially problematic. But the people who who are happiest and most fulfilled in what they do, uh, they don't they don't separate the two; they integrate them. And, and if anything, they try to bring the lessons of their life into work, and that's a lot of what's going on. I mean, again, you know, we can get into some practical things of like, you know, if you are in a workquake, how do you kind of make happiness out of it? How do you find meaning in a time of work? But the you know, my, the search is built around as you know, like what I call three lies and a truth about work. And lie number one is that you have a career. Like that idea was invented 100 years ago um, you know, at a time when the Industrial Revolution, you know, a third of the workforce was leaving rural areas and coming to the cities. Uh, the mass immigration was happening across, particularly across, you know, the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and you have suddenly a bunch of new kind of companies and a kind of new kind of employees, and they didn't have any way of connecting. And so the career was invented. And the idea was that once in your life, in your early 20s, if you're a man, uh, you know, you, you, you take a sort of test and you figure out an occupation and you do that for the next 50 years which led to the next idea, which is that there is a path, right? And all the ways we've talked about work is as linear or linear, right? A career path, a corporate ladder, right? Even the resume, which was invented in the 1950s, is a linear idea of each a series of successive jobs, each bigger than the last. And that's ridiculous. And it's not how we work now because that stigmatizes anything that gets you off the path, right? Changing your mind, wanting to spend more time with young children, wanting to spend time with your mother who's got chemo uh, appointments, wanting to do public service, wanting to start something that might fail and you'll be back where you were. All of those are perfectly normal, uh, you know, responses to life. Uh, I got cancer as a 43-year-old man. I was writing books and making television called Walking the Bible. I was like the walking guy, and suddenly I couldn't walk again, okay? In the old world, I would have been left for dead on the side of the road. Um, so I had to reimagine what it is that I wanted to do. And it turns out we do that 20 times in our lives. What, you, what, what I've been calling work, what I call work quakes, and we've been kind of dancing around them. Let's talk about them. So what is a work quake? It's a jolt, right? You know, I don't know if the snapping is good or bad on the audio here, but it's a jolt. It's like a disruption when you are either forced to or you choose to rethink or reimagine what you do. We go through a work quick every 2.85 years. 
And by the way, mm. women go through them more than men, Xers more than boomers, millennials more than Xers, and Gen Zers, no doubt, more than millennials. And by the way, diverse workers go through them more frequently than non-diverse workers. So as the young force, as the workforce gets younger, more diverse, and you know, almost majority female now, we're going to go through more of these. And the question then is, what do you do when you're in one? Because if you stay on the should train, the irony of this is, right, in the, you know, the back half of my book is a series of questions, right? I call it 21 questions to find work you love. You know, you said who is your who and what is your what and where is your where. And the problem with work is we put the how too early mm. because you'll find a job. Yeah. But you'll be just as unhappy. You won't find meaning. You won't be doing what you what you really want to be doing. And you'll be looking again in two and a half years. So you have to put the how at the end. First, you have to do the digging, the meaning audit, the personal archaeology to figure out what is the story you want to be telling because that's what no one's told us. They're, we are very good at getting the work that we should have. We're not very good at getting the work that we want to have. Mm. Do you think we can do better at trying on a daily basis or a weekly basis to be able to try to identify those things which we care about, which give us meaning? Or do you think this is like a you know a work-life audit thing that we need to dig deep into intermittently? I, I ran a business for 10 years and I was fortunate. I, I, had, I was enforced by the terms of the deal when I left that company that I could not do anything for six months essentially I couldn't do anything competing so I had this natural period where I had an opportunity for self-reflection and to dig into what mm -hmm. my past and what I wanted for the in the present and in the future um, and that was great and by the way I am absolutely still in this transition I have moments of clarity and I have moments of severe self-doubt I do however feel like I'm making progress it's just sometimes it's many steps forward and sometimes it's just a minuscule step forward but I had that luxury I guess of time now the insight I've had is that I wish I'd been doing this incrementally I wish I hadn't mm -hmm. just waited and I wish that nice. I were able to just do this every day. And, I, and I've created this by journaling, a micro journaling practice, I call it, because journaling sounds scary to some people. But, you know, I spend a couple of minutes each evening just noting down a few things that happened in my day. And when I reflect on those things, there's signals in there about what the things are that I am enjoying doing. And, you know, simply put, I try and do more of them. And, uh, and again, it's taken me you know, 40 years to get to this point. I just wonder whether in the context that you've described in the book, it is a deep-rooted analysis of our background or whether actually it could be something which is more accessible. Wow, I love this question. Um, you're good. I, that's a very interesting question. And I have to say, to bring it to my present, I'm, I'm a little bit in conflict, I think, in, about this question with my wife right now because mm. we are in the middle of this life transition, as I, as I just described. And I have some personal decisions to make about what I want to start doing you know, in a few months when we become empty nesters and, and I get to reimagine one of these forced moments of reimagining. And I kind of want to talk about it with my wife a couple, three times a week. And she keeps saying, no, 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 we're going to talk about it when we get there, right? <laughs> and so yeah. she wants to do it in that way of because she also runs an organization of like 50, you know, she, her name is Linda Rotenberg. She 
started and runs an organization called Endeavor that supports high impact entrepreneurs in 50 countries around the world. So she's got this, you know, she's got 500 people working for her. She's very busy. And by the time she gets to me at the end of the night, like I'm the, you know, the last thing she wants to do is like, you know, <laughs> talk and explore and I dig, right? She wants to sleep and, uh, and, and this will sound wrong, but drink a glass of wine, you know, and, and watch reality television. And I'm ready to like, to do some digging. Um, so she wants to climb away from me and I want to dig, in, you know, alongside her. Um, but I think, so, look, uh, so here's my answer to this question. Um, y- you know, yes, is the answer to this question, which is to say, <laughs> it's nonlinear. <laughs> you might be a digger, I might be a climber, you know, whatever. The answer is, do it however you want. But here's the thing to keep in mind, right? So in, in transitions, you know, there's a series of tools about, about, um, that can help us go through a transition. One of them is to share your story with others. Witness me trying to do this with my wife. Um, so I decided to dig into this in the new round of interviews I did for the search. And so I asked people in your biggest work transition, you know, did you get a piece of advice that helped you? And if so, you know, who was it and 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 what was it? And the when we crunched the numbers, it was very interesting. Three quarters of people said that the best advice they got in their work transition was to trust yourself. And so I think um, uh, this field that I'm talking about, which turns out to have a name, uh, narrative career construction, this idea that success is a story you have to write for yourself, which I'm sort of bursting out of a kind of a narrow niche of academia and kind of into the public, was invented by a man named Mark Savickas in Cleveland. And when I talked to him, he said that when someone comes to him and says, I don't, you know, I'm in a work transition, I don't know what to do. He said, I usually know in five minutes what the answer is, but I don't want mm-hmm. to tell them. I want to help them discover it, right? He has this thing that he calls your known unknown, right? Which is, which is what you know that you haven't surfaced to yourself that you know. So the point is you are already writing that story inside of you all of the time. When you do something like the micro journaling, and I love that phrase that you're talking about, when you ask yourself these questions that I, you know, who was your role model as a child? What did you learn from your parents? When does your story start, right? I'm at a moment in my life when, when you go through these questions, you are basically surfacing a series of answers that you already know. That's why three quarters of people said, you know, trust yourself, right? Mm -hmm. People don't need a kick in the rear. They need a pat on the back, right? And so I think that however you're doing it, you are doing it. You know, I'm thinking of two different people that I know, actually. One, this woman named Lisa Ludovici, who was a big ad executive, uh, who was unhappy and essentially walked away, listened to someone on the radio, and then became, uh, she had suffered three migraines an hour for 20 plus years. And ultimately she became a medical hypnotist who helps people get through their medical journeys. And a guy, interesting, you're in London, um, who's an American, had a tenured professorship in nuclear physics in London, but was the face of a YouTube comedy band. um, And he walked away from one of the hardest to get jobs in academia to become the front man of and to devote himself exclusively to this you know ninja comedy um, band that he started 
And both of them used the almost the exact same explanation for why when I pressed them. And it was that the pain of staying was greater than the pain of leaving. Mm-hmm. And the reason I tell that story is that the pain is the embodied story that you're telling yourself. If you are asking these questions, if you are doing it, if you are playing with your children and realizing that you have this tension with this work email you want to do, that is you making the decision, which you just have not fully identified to yourself or narrativized to yourself, right? Fear When you see the bear, I mean, William James did this 130 years ago. When you see the bear, you don't say, I'm afraid, and then you run. You run, and then you say, I'm afraid. That's always the way that it goes. The body knows the story before the mind does. So the digging is not the process of telling the story. It's getting in touch with the story that's already there. Mm. Brilliant. Uh, I want to just ask, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that we're nearing the end of our, our fascinating time together, but I've got a couple of questions, which is, I suppose, getting towards helping people make this real, giving them a framework to say, actually, it's it's easier than you might think to begin getting in touch with your story. Um, and what the first is, I just thought this was really fascinating because it absolutely got me thinking, was a, as a, a point you made in the book when you described how the stories we actually enjoy reading or watching or recounting mm-hmm. actually tell us something about ourselves. And when I started thinking yeah. about that, I we using that lens. I was like, absolutely, it actually absolutely does. Can you just speak to that? And I suppose put it in the frame that, again, yeah, this can help us understand perhaps yeah. what it is that we really want to be doing. Right. So, 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 so to you know, actualize or actionize or whatever the word would be, this thing, yes. So when you are in a workquake, um, don't climb, dig. And what I've tried to do in the search is to give you a series of very specific questions. I call it 21 questions to find work you love, as I said earlier. And these do what? They link together past, present, and future because that's what meaning does, right? So present is the happiness, as we said earlier. Then the meaning is how you stitch the past, the present, and future together. So some of those are about the past. What were the upsides and downsides of work you learned from your parents, right? Who were your role models as a child? What environments were you drawn to uh, when you were younger, right? We've been writing these stories since before we had words, and you want to act, you know, you sort of make make contact uh, with those stories. And some of them is just today. Like, so, you know, a simple question like, I'm at a moment in my life when, blank. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm at a moment in my life when, I need to make money because I'm paying off my student debt, right? Or in my case, sending two kids to college. Or I'm in a moment when I have three children under 10 and I want to be with them, right? Or I need to move my parent into an assisted living facility. Or I'm in a moment when I've been doing the same thing for a long time and I'm bored out of my mind and I'm not growing and I want to make a change because I want to make my community better or fight climate change or, you know, get involved in a religious organization. So, the point is when there is no career and there is no path, there's no penalty for getting off the path, for making the non-right choice, and you can do it. And so one 
of those questions is a very simple one. What kinds of stories do you like? Okay, you know, in my case, I like long biographies of like important men um, uh, and women, but important figures uh, from history. I mentioned Van Gogh because I had mentioned that earlier with my daughters. I read that one recently or um, William James. It's a great biography of William James. And I like you know, kind of fiction by by new voices. Well, my wife, she likes juicy, gossipy uh, accounts of the collapse of famous companies, right? Like Uber, right? Or, you know, so she likes kind of corporate intrigue stories. And then she likes like, you know, escapist fiction, right? Well, that tells you a lot because what she does one during the day and one at night. So the simple, I, I talked to a guy, Isaiah Warner, who is like the most distinguished black chemist and frankly, one of the most distinguished chemists of any kind. He grew up in, he grew up in uh, literally picking cotton uh, in Louisiana, who came to then give um, uh, more than 100 PhDs to black students when he was one of the first to ever get one in his state. And he likes detective novels, right? Because he finds chemistry, Mm. like piecing together different clues. So this will give the the stories that you associate yourself with are the stories you want to associate yourself with. And that will, will, will give you a clue. That's the power of these questions is you can't stop asking them. You can't stop asking them of someone else you live with or love or know who's going through a work quake. And it helps you do what we've never really been given, which is the tools to bring the idea of your life as a story into the place we need it most, which is the place of work. Mm -hmm. By the way, I also have two different styles of story that I like to enjoy. One tends to be the business biography as a a entrepreneurs, you know, starting very small and, you know, creating meaningful companies. Here's how Phil not created Nike, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. That's on the on the shelf behind me with, my, with a selection of my books, as you see. Um, and, and the other is actually interestingly detective novels. What does it to tell me that I like to switch my brain off with mystery and detective novels? It's probably the problem-solving bit. Think, I yeah, think it's a problem yeah, solving. Yeah, and by the way, my and they're all, they're often psychological, right? I'm just listening to you. Yeah. What do we know? Like you, you, you like. First of all, they're both narrative in their own way, right? So yes, it's a business book, but it's a business narrative, right? It's not Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? It's not that kind of book. It's a biography, which is a fundamentally narrative thing. And then, mm. a, you know, a detective usually has a person that's digging to, you know, identify things like action and motive. And so nothing in this conversation that does that surprise me, right? You, you view yourself, you view people like me. My guess is you view your children right as you know uh, unconstructed stories made of different donuts in different places that you try to put into some sort of pile um that that makes a certain amount of sense that that that, that's completely instructive i mean it's 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 not the answer but it's a piece of the puzzle exactly yeah right i i I fear that my last question it could be a separate podcast in itself however i'm going to ask it because again i think it's just a useful mental model for people to think about and sort of take away abc you talk about understanding your abc um perhaps you could you know briefly explain what that means and again for me this just demonstrates the individuality of everybody's work and life so I think, um, and this will allow me to to fulfill the promise um, that I teased at the beginning to talk about the toothache, because um, I don't want to leave that hanging. Um, if you go back to that moment when the career was invented, if you go back 120 years ago, right, for most people at that time, um, most of the sources of meaning were given to them. 
they had to live where their parents wanted them to live and do what their parents wanted them to do and believe what their parents wanted them to believe and love who their parents wanted them to love and straight on down the line. Um, should, 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 should. Maybe even must, 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 must. Mm. Today, we don't live in that world, right? You can live where you want to live and do what you want to do and believe what you want to believe and love who you want to love, which has freed a lot of people, particularly women and people from underrepresented and often, you know, um, beat down backgrounds. But the problem is that it's harder. Because you then have to decide what is it that I believe? What is it? Who is it that I love? What is it that I want to do? And, you know, where is it that I want to be? Um, We have, we get writer's block trying to write the story of our own lives. And um, so how do we do that? The answer is we have three levers that we pull and I call them the ABCs of meaning. The A is agency. That's what we do or make or build or create. In narrative terms, it's our me story. For many people, it's our work. The B is belonging. That's our relationships, our loved ones, our friends, our family, our you know colleagues, our co-religionists, our co-marchers, or whatever they might be in a cause. In, in narrative terms, the belonging is our we story. And the third is a cause. It's a calling. It's a purpose. It's something higher than yourself in narrative terms. Um, it's your the story. So we have our me story, our we story, and our the story, our A, B, and C. And we all have them in different percentages. And what happens is in a life transition, we we recalibrate them, right? So maybe in your case, you were running a business and then you had children and you said, you know what, I'm, I, I'm either going to sell or I have this opportunity or I was forced to, and now I'm going to spend more time with my family, right? So your A shrinks in importance and your B elevates in importance, okay? And maybe you're doing that for a while and you realize, you know, but I have wisdom I want to share with other people. I want to connect with them. And you say, I'm going to start writing, right? My cause is going to be, you know, helping other people navigate these moments. And so then you re, you know, you realign the pebbles in the, you know, in the scales and your cause becomes more important. And we're constantly doing that in the course of our lives, kind of, you know, recalibrating the ABCs of meaning. Um, And so that gets to, but we've all had, we all have all of them and we change um, at various moments. And that gets to this question of a toothache, because what the toothache is, is a sort of nagging pain that's been in our lives um, all along. Some sort of cause that we have comes from a Hans Christian Andersen uh, fairy tale, the last one he wrote called Auntie Toothache, about a boy who's in a painful um, toothache one night, and he's visited by this older woman who says to this boy, you've got away with words. (laughs) You're going to be a poet, but you should know every great poet has a great toothache. And so when I asked people, what was your toothache? It was the best question I've asked in 35 years <laughs> since my grandmother passed those letters around um, uh, that gets at a pain point, something that's been nagging at you since you were a child, right? You want to escape. You want to grow. You want to solve inequality. You want to bring back your parents together who might have split. You want to, you want to do something that makes your world right. And the most important thing in asking your toothache and in understanding your own ABCs is to realize that your balance of ABCs is going to be different than everybody else. Your toothache is going to be, in effect, unique, even though some people have similar ones. Um, And the goal here is to make yourself the hero of your own story. Stop chasing someone else's dream. Start chasing your own dream 
And the most important and the hardest part is to figure out what is your dream? What is the story you want to tell? And what I've been, my work now, and certainly what I hope the search will do is give you the tools to figure that out. Wonderful. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story, for helping me certainly understand my story a little bit better and for sharing all your insights with everyone listening. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.